Okay, come on in, get a seat. Um, last Sunday, we began a series on the book of James, which occurs in the New Testament, and it's towards the end of the book. And our series is dealing with a faith that actually works for us. <clears throat> it's important for you to remember that James is writing to a group of Christians who have been under tremendous amount of persecution. <clears throat> and because of that, they have been scattered all over the known world. And <clears throat> a lot of Christians have this idea that once you become a believer, once you become a follower of Jesus, everything becomes like unicorns and rainbows and flowers, and you're all floating around on this sugar-coated cloud. And James comes and tells them, no, troubles... Problems are just a fact of life. Everybody has troubles. And yet we saw last week that James tells us that if we're willing, if we can be mature about this, we can actually see that God can use troubles, problems, to help us to grow up. Well, this morning, I want to look at the second thing that James actually addresses in James chapter 1. So you can turn there if you would like, if you have your Bibles with you. James chapter 1. And I want to look at this whole arena of temptations. Now, over the years, there's been all kinds of jokes about the devil, about sin, about temptations. It's all like, ha, 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 a lot of fun. I can remember when I was a kid, uh, there was a show on at the time called The Laughing. How many of you guys remember Laughing? Okay, you guys are all dating yourself. I'm just saying. <clears throat> there was a guy on there by Flip Wilson. His name was Flip Wilson. How many of you guys remember Flip Wilson? He used to have a common phrase. What was it? The devil made me do it. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> appreciate that, Connie. One second here. <clears throat> I was doing good earlier. Thank you. Um. He says, the devil made me do it. Oscar Wilde says, I can resist anything except temptation. My own father-in-law used to joke that he has found the surest way to handle temptation. Just give in and then it's over. And that all sounds funny except for, isn't it true that temptations aren't a laughing matter? In fact, if I could entitle today's message, it would be something like, The War Within. It's something we all struggle with at times. Look at James chapter 1, if you would. James chapter 1, and I'm beginning in verse 13. James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Now, when we come to this issue of temptation, that is a totally different concept or idea than what we looked at last week with troubles. God uses trials. He never uses temptations. Okay, get that in your mind. That's like the overarching theme of this whole section. God will use trials in your life. I'm not saying God causes trials. I'm saying God can use trials. But he never uses 
temptations. Trials are situations that are used by God to help us to grow up. Temptations are designed by the enemy to cause us to sin and ultimately to self-destruct. How many of you guys remember Mission Impossible? Every, every time at the beginning of the show, I love this scene at the beginning of the show, they get this tape-recorded message, and they say, at the end of this tape, this tape will self-destruct, and you see it all says, well, that's kind of what happens in our lives when we give in to temptation. It might be a slight pause while you're waiting for it to happen, but temptation leads to sin, which leads to death or self-destruction. So James says, when you're tempted, please hear this, when you're tempted, don't you dare say God did it. Because God has nothing to do with temptation at all. So let me give you a definition of temptation for those of you that like to take notes. And I'm going to tell you up front, I don't like this definition. It's my definition. I don't like it. Because it's not like a neatly packaged thing. It's not all-encompassing. It's just not perfect. But I'm going to give you this definition because it's the best that I could do. In fact, I was so serious about this that I put it out on Facebook and I wrote to all of my wiser friends, all of my friends that have been doing this whole thing called ministry for years and years and years, and I said, give me your definition of temptation. And I got to say, every one of their temptation, every one of their definitions was worse than mine. So you're getting the best of the lot, all right? Don't tell them I said that. Here it is. Temptation is enticement to do wrong or believe wrong, usually with the promise of pleasure or gain. I'll let them leave that up there for just a minute. It's an, an enticement to do wrong. We can be tempted to do wrong because it seems to give us a promise of temporary pleasure or gain. You, you lie about something to get ahead or because you don't want to get in trouble with your boss. Oh, I, I never got your text. I'm so sorry. And we lie. Or promise of gain. Like, well, if, if I let them know this, like if I tell them, yeah, things are really hard, they will give me a little bit more than what I deserve because they feel bad for me and I get gain. It's a promise of pleasure or gain. Or it is also an enticement to believe wrong. To believe lies about yourself, about others, and about God. And I really felt like this morning was a bit of a confirmation for me personally about that. That a lot of times we are tempted not so much to do wrong all the time, although that does happen. We are also tempted to believe wrong things about ourselves. To believe lies that have been spoken over our lives. Let me give you an example. For me personally. One of the stronger temptations that happen in my life is this temptation to believe that I will never change. Have you ever thought that? Like, I don't think I'm ever going to get any better than this. This is like, I try and I try and I try and this is it. And so I am tempted to believe a lie. Which is part of the reason why I didn't like my definition. Because when I believe a lie, what do I get out of it? Other than self-flagellation where I'm killing myself inside and maybe feeling a little bit better for being honest. But the truth is, we have temptation to do wrong or to believe wrong things. Um, Sometimes we can think that God is out there bringing us temptation just to test us, to see if we can stand against this. 
But the scripture tells us that God never entraps us. He never sets up a trap to try to trick us or to catch us in doing something wrong. He's not out to get you to sin, to see how holy or unholy you really are. Now, there are two things I want you to get. These are like the two overarching ideas that I believe James paints for us here in this first chapter about temptation. The first one is this. Everyone is tempted. Okay, let me ask you. Who is tempted? Everyone. So when I've had people say to me, well, you know, it must say something about you, Pastor Chris, because, you know, once I got really close to Jesus, man, I haven't been tempted in 42 years. I got to tell you, that's what you get when you join together a crocodile and an abalone. You get a crock of baloney. That's what that is. It's baloney. Everyone is tempted. James says not if you're tempted. He says what? When you're tempted. Everybody is tempted. And you got to get that in your mind. Because sometimes part of the trick of the enemy is to make you believe that you're different than everybody else. You're worse. You're more evil than everybody else. Because why would you have those thoughts go through your mind? Why would you think that way? Why would you see that? Why would you notice that if it weren't that you aren't so evil? But the truth is, everyone is tempted. The closer you get to Jesus doesn't mean you're not tempted anymore. In fact, a good scripture for you to put down in your notes is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Hebrews 4, 15. And it says this. For we do not have a high priest. And when we talk about high priest, notice it's in capital letters. It's talking about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points. How many points was that? All points. Tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ, who was the perfect Son of God, was himself tempted. Does that mean he was evil? Does that mean he was a sinner because he tempted? No, the scripture says, even though he was tempted, he was without sin. The first thing I want you to get is that every single one of us is tempted. But you got to get this truth. Temptation is not sin. Okay? Get that into your mind. Think about that for a minute. To be tempted is not a sin in itself. And I say that because sometimes the enemy likes to play tricks with our minds. And we have something flash through our mind, or we see something, and we have a thought flash through our mind, and we say, and we begin to speak in tongues, and we rebuke it, and we plead the blood of Jesus. We go through all these steps as if somehow we have done something wrong because we're tempted. But the scripture is clear Jesus was tempted, but it wasn't sin. It's the same for us. He says he was tempted in every way like we are. But it wasn't sin. It wasn't sin for him, and it's not sin for us either. Temptation proves you're human, not that you're evil in some way. And that, I believe, is one of the biggest lies of the enemy that we can believe. We're tempted to believe there must be something horribly wrong with me if I can still be tempted after all of these years. But Jesus was tempted not only at the beginning. The scripture says he was tempted again in the garden. And angels had to come and even minister to him. I'm saying to you that to be tempted is not 
to sin. If you believe that when you're tempted, it's sinful, it proves there's something wrong with you, I think it puts you in danger of a couple things. Number one, if you think the temptation itself is a sin, then there's a part of you that says, well, I've already been charged guilty for this. I might as well just give in. I might as well do what I'm tempted to do. And a lot of people do exactly that. I had the thought, goes, you know what Jesus says, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart already. I know people who have said, well, I already looked, I already lusted. He says I've already committed adultery. I might as well do it. And a lot of people have that kind of mindset that works in them that says, well, if it's already sin, I might as well at least get some gain out of it. The second danger is this, that you can believe that if you are tempted, there's got to be something so horribly wrong with you that you feel disqualified from the very love and acceptance that God has promised you. We sang it again and again today. He has chosen us. He has accepted us. He has made us His beloved. That's not because of something in us. That's because of something in Him. And yet, when we believe that we're tempted that sin, it can make us feel like somehow we are disqualified from God's acceptance and God's love. But I would say to you that to be tempted is not a sin. It's only when you embrace the temptation, when you allow it to take root in your heart and in your mind, and you begin to ruminate on it. You begin to think about it. You begin to process it inside, and you begin to take some sort of pleasure that then you have given birth to sin. Up until that point, it is just a device of the enemy because you live in a fallen world. It is not sin in itself. Now, one of the common tactics that we use when tempted is what I call blame shifting. We blame other things and other people for it. Yet the Scripture is clear that when you are tempted, it's not sin. It only becomes sin when that temptation links up with. It actually conceives something when it's joined together with your own desires. So don't say they made me do it. Don't say your grandma or your grandpa or your, your, your dad or your mom. Don't say Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump made you do it. Don't say it's the educational system. Don't say it's the weather. Don't say it's the color of your hair. Well, I just got red hair. You know, people with red hair, you know what that means. Don't say it's your nationality, your ethnicity. It is you. It's the, it's the old Negro spiritual. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in need. So we can't blame shift in any of this. It's about us. So the first thing I want you to get is that everyone is tempted. The second thing that I have as a point is all temptation follows the same process. All temptation follows a similar process throughout the whole thing. James says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away, and if you can write in your Bible, you might want to underline that, and then by his own desires and enticed, and underline enticed. The word drawn away is a hunting term, and it means to set a snare or a trap. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a friend of mine who was big into trapping, and we went up on the high tour of Naples. Uh, high tour is a bunch of uh, wooded property up there at the park that is there. And we would set traps around. And you would set the trap, and then you would put everything around it. And he would always take this little bottle of like uh, some kind of uh, lure, and he would put it all over the trap. So that when they came, they didn't smell anything wrong. They would come and they would smell something good, something they wanted, so that they would put their foot in the trap. That's the word that James uses there. 
He says, he has set a trap for you. But the word enticement is another kind of word. The word enticement is a fishing term, and it means to set bait, to actually draw you in. And it's kind of like this. Think about it this way. Think about there's this little fish that's swimming in the ocean, and he has just graduated from school, because we know that all fish swim in schools. So he's just graduated from school, and his mommy and daddy fish get him together and say, son, we need to have a conversation. You're going out into the big, wide ocean, and in the big, wide ocean, there's a lot of wonderful things out there, things that you're going to enjoy. It's going to be a great time for you as you're growing up, but you do need to know this. There are some beings that live up above, and they like nothing more than sending down what looks like these luscious worms. But you need to hear me, son. In the worms is this hook. And if you look really carefully, tied to the hook is this very fine string. And if you eat the worm, the hook is going to grab you. They're going to yank you up. They're going to cut your head open. They're going to rip your guts out. And they're going to put you in a frying pan. And they're going to eat you. So don't do it. I mean, this is serious stuff. And the son, being a dutiful, obedient son, like all of my grandchildren are, say, Mom and Dad, I hear you. I would never do anything like that. And so he swims out, he's out on his own now, and he swims around, and all of a sudden he sees this worm dangling in front of his face. And he thinks, wow, that looks good, but I remember what mom and dad said, and he just swims away, does something else. He goes looking at the coral or whatever, but he gives away. Another day comes along, and he's out with some of his friends, and another worm comes down, but this one is like, whoa. This is like a fat, luscious worm. And he says to his friends, did you see this worm? Man, I mean... I've never seen a worm that is that big in that area of its body. I was like, whoa. But we remember what my mom and dad said, so we better just, let's get away from here. So they leave. But finally a day comes when the granddaddy of all worms comes down. This is like the worm to pass all worms. It is posted on the, the magazine called Worms Alive. It's like... I didn't realize that you would even come for me. And he thinks to himself, you know, I remember what mom and dad said, but mom and dad are a little bit of a fuddy-duddy. They're a little bit legalistic, a little bit too technical for me. I think I'm not like them. I think I could take just a little bit of bite, and I'll be okay. So he reaches up, and he just nibbles, nibbles at the worm. And the fisherman who's up in the boat yanks for all he's worth and misses it. And he says, oh, man, missed that one. Don't know what happened. And the little fishy swims away. Another day comes, and he nibbles again, and it never gets caught. Until finally one day he says, you know, all the other fish in the ocean are stupid compared to me. I've done this again and again without any problem. I think I can nibble. I bet you I can nibble that worm right off that hook and not get caught. So he starts nibbling away until suddenly the fisherman yanks with the hook, catches him in the jaw, pulls him up into the boat, cuts its head off, rips its guts out, puts it in a frying pan, and eats it. That's enticement. That's what James means when he talks about enticement. It's a trick of the enemy that lures you, but hear this, based upon desires. I said there's a process, and he puts it in verse 15. Look at verse 15. When desire has conceived, it's a birthing term. There's a conception that goes on. It's when desire actually joins together 
with temptation. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Now, I've, I have some people that I love and respect and I read their stuff or I listen to their blogs or read their blogs or listen to their podcasts. There are some who believe that when James uses the term death, he means literally separation from God. There's others that say no, it just means that it has a destructive head. I don't know, but I do know this. If God wanted to make you understand how serious this is, I don't think he could use a more serious word than death. So I think he's very, very serious about this issue of what temptation does in the soul of a person. So let me give you just very quickly these five steps or processes that James says he takes us through. The first one is it starts with desire. Desire. Every one of you in this room have desires. You do. You were born with certain things that God even put in you with the intent that if you will have relationship with God, he will actually fulfill it in a way that will bring life, joy, and peace to your souls. Maybe for you, it's the desire for love. Maybe you just have something built within you that says, I just want somebody who will love me and that we can walk out life together. And if you choose to wait on God, that works great. You wait until you come across, if you're a guy, you come across this young lady. If you're a girl, you come across this guy. And you join together in marriage, and it's a wonderful thing, which is God's plan. That's what God has arranged for. Or you can choose to take a shortcut. You can say, well, I think maybe, maybe there's another way. And it's a temptation that allows your desires to go a wrong way. Maybe for you it has something to do with um, you have in you a desire for tasty food. You like food. I've, I, I've worked out at the Y a bit, and I can't tell you how many times I've had people say to me, how did you lose weight? And I've said, same way everybody else does. I work out every single day if I can. They say, I've been here for six years working out every single day, and I've not lost a pound. And I said, well, the other part of the equation is you, you work out, but you also have to watch your food intake. He goes, well, that's a problem because I like food. Inside, I'm thinking, okay, who doesn't? Most of us like food. We have a desire for tasty, filling food. And if we use it wisely, it actually nourishes our body and strengthens us, gives us energy. Or we can use it badly, and we can end up in gluttony. So all I'm saying is that everybody starts with desires. Those desires are neither good nor bad. They're, they're almost neutral in a way. What makes them good or bad is how you allow them to control or affect your life. So we start with desire. That's the first one. And by the way, these all start with D just because that's what you're supposed to do. Okay? The second thing is this. We'll call it doubt, or you could call it distrust. It's where you begin to doubt God's goodness and commitment to your best. It's where you begin to wonder, is God holding out on you? I know God said that if I would wait for his timing, he would bring somebody along who would love me as I am, who would help me to grow as a person, but I've waited a lot of years and it's not happening. I'm wondering. It's the kind of thing where uh, it's what the enemy, the serpent, did in the garden when he said, did God really say and then he adds this little phrase, for God knows. He's implying God has bad motives. He's promised you something and he's not going to fulfill it. 
And so we begin to doubt and we take things into our own hand, which leads us to number three, which is deception. You begin to believe the lie of the enemy that there is a promise that is so good I can't live without it. And the drive in my desire is so strong that I ignore the consequences. God's not fulfilling my desires. So I guess I'll have to meet them myself. Which leads me to number four, defiance. You go your own way. You say, well, I don't really care anymore. I'm going to do it anyways. I've waited. I've trusted. I've believed. I've prayed. I've had prophets speak over me and still nothing. So I guess I'll just have to go out and get it myself. And it's every man did that which seemed right in his or her own eyes. You get to choose the way you want to live. You do. God gives you free will. You get to choose how you want to live. What you don't get to choose is the consequences of your choices. And there are consequences if you go outside of God's established order. And finally, number five, destruction. Destruction. He says death. It's a word linked with conception and birth. And he's painting a picture for you. And I want you to think about this. He paints a picture of a woman who has conceived something inside of her. And her womb continues to grow. And there's anticipation. There's excitement. This is something good that is being promised to us. But when the day of birth actually comes, it comes out stillborn. You have a dead baby. And what should have been a day of celebration and joy becomes a day of depression, discouragement, and devastation. That's the picture that James is painting. When we dabble with temptation and allow it to grab hold of, to hook our desires, it gives birth to sin. And sin always ends in stillbirth. A dead thing that is no life and no joy. Proverbs 14.12 says, there's the way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. There's a little meme that I saw on Facebook that I like, and it says this. Be careful of what you entertain. Sin fascinates before it assassinates. That's a good thing for you to write. Sin fascinates before it assassinates. Sin is deadly, but it starts not with temptation. Temptation is going to be worldwide all over every day. It starts with your desires. Your desires. Not You can't blame anybody. You can't blame the doctor who spanked you too hard when you were born. This starts inside of you and inside of me. But the desire itself isn't bad. It's what we do with it. It's what we allow it to control us and drive us. James doesn't leave us there. Yes, it's inevitable. And yes, the system, the process is consistent. But James actually gives us a way to deal with this problem of temptation. He gives us some things. Look at verses 16 and 17 and 18. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So as we look at the way in which James tells us we should handle 
all of this issue surrounding temptation. The first thing I want you to get, and like this is like the main number one point. If you get this, you've already been halfway there. The other points are important, but this is like the starting point. And it's number one. You can never be passive about this. You have to get aggressive. Get serious about temptation that comes into your life. Do whatever it takes. You don't sit back and say, oh, dear God, I wish you would help me to resist this temptation while you're looking it in the face. That's like somebody who's sitting with a glass of booze in his hand at the bar saying, God, help me not to take a drink. What should you be doing? Get out of there if it's a problem for you. Get out. Don't drink. Don't put yourself around it. Get aggressive. In fact, Jesus worded it this way. If your eye could possibly offend you, pluck it out. I don't think that means he wants a bunch of blind people in heaven. I think he's saying, get serious about it. Get aggressive. Do whatever it takes to avoid it and get out of there. Um, I know that a lot of you guys uh, have seen me as an older man because I've been old for a long time. Uh, some people said I was born old. Um, but in my younger days, in my youth, I used to enjoy sports. I used to like to play sports, whether it be softball or ping pong or volleyball or basketball or kickball or dodgeball. It didn't matter. If it was a sport, I was competitive. And i got to tell you, when it came to these sports... I didn't go after it with an attitude that was laissez-faire. I didn't approach it like I didn't care if I won or lost. I always approached every game I played like I wanted to win. When my kids were little, I didn't let my kids win anything. That'll help them grow up and be real men. I was competitive. I went at this thing to win. Now, if I did my best and I lost, I was okay with that. Okay, I lied. Um, I wasn't. But I tried to be. I played to win. Well, I think in the same way, when it comes to temptation, you need to play to win. You need to get really serious about this whole issue. And I know that there's going to be somebody here who's saying, Pastor, you're just being so legalistic about this. God understands. I know God understands. God understands the problems with our hearts. And he wants to change it. He doesn't wink at our sin. He doesn't wink at us taking shortcuts because we don't want to wait on him. If you sit with your feet dangling over a cesspool, don't be surprised if sometimes you fall in and you stink to high heaven. Get away from it. Get aggressive about temptation. The second thing that I want to say about that is that when it comes to moral sexual sin, nowhere, what was that word I just used again? Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to resist sexual sin. Do you know what it tells you to do? Flee it. Run away. Get out of there. If you find yourself in a place of temptation when it comes to sexual or moral issues, James tells us, you don't resist this. You run away from this. You get out of there. You get so serious about this that you don't even take a chance with it. When Joseph was in Potiphar's house, the Scripture tells us, 
that Potiphar's wife put temptation in front of him and said, come, lie with me. No one will know about it. My husband's gone away. All the servants are gone. You come and lie with me. Joseph didn't say, you know, I'm feeling pretty strong today. I think maybe I should talk to her a little bit more and help her to understand the error of her thinking. I think maybe if I helped her to understand the love of God, maybe if I witnessed to her, that's what I should do. And that's what a lot of Christians do. Well, I know this is a dangerous thing, but I just feel like God's called me to the law, so I'm going to go and hang out there. Even though the Scripture is pretty clear that we're to flee those kinds of temptations. What did Joseph do? He runs out of the house, leaving his cloak behind, his coat behind. He runs away from it. Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Flee, run away. Don't hang out with anything in the moral arena because in the moral arena, that sin doesn't just hurt other people. It actually hurts your own soul. Paul tells us in Corinthians that when you sin in the moral arena, you actually wound yourself. And that's a dangerous thing. Solomon puts it this way. Do not turn to the right or left. Remove your foot from evil. So some temptations you flee from. But number three, some temptations you're called to resist. You're to fight it. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Part of the way we give resistance is we go contrary to the temptation. So, Paul says in Ephesians, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he might have something to give to those in need. So Paul is saying, when the temptation is there to hoard, to save and amass for yourself, the way you handle it is you actually become a giver so that the temptation no longer has a hook in your soul. Which is why we watched these videos last month. is so that we can become better givers. Not so that the church can become rich, but so that money, things, stuff doesn't own us. But that we are owned by God. Now maybe you're not tempted outright to steal. Maybe that's not your temptation. But it is your temptation when you go home from work. Maybe at least once a week. Maybe more. You go home and you get online and the first thing you do is you check your bank account. You check your checking. You check your savings. You check your investment. And every time you look at it, you look at it and you think, oh, this is so nice. It's growing. It makes me feel so good, so safe inside. And you are building something, but you don't realize what you're building. Because though you have amassed more and more money, you've neglected to think about the fact that in order to get there, you've worked hour after hour. You don't even come to church half the time anymore because you're too busy making money. You've neglected your family, all in the name of amassing wealth. So if maybe for you it's not stealing. Maybe for you it's a lust after security. I don't know, whatever it is. He says we're to resist it. And I believe part of the way we resist it, a good part of the way we resist it, is we actually do the kingdom thing. We become givers, lovers of God. Number four, another way to overcome temptation is to watch your associations. Watch who you hang out with. Be careful. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, don't let anyone deceive you. 
Associating with bad people will ruin decent people. Proverbs 13.20 He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Who you hang out with is going to affect your destiny. It's going to affect how you live. I was talking with somebody recently who is a nurse. And uh, every day when their shift would end, all the nurses would get together and go out to the bar. And they would just sit and kind of debrief and kind of get yourself a little bit of relaxation. And she never did. She's, she's a believer. She never did. And, but they would beg her again and again and again. So finally she thought one day she would go out with them. And she said it was the worst thing she's ever done in her life. She couldn't believe that people actually act like that and talk like that and got drunker and drunker knowing that that was the only way they could somehow process things. Who you hang out with affects your life. It affects how you feel and how you think. And there are times in God's economy of the kingdom of God in which he calls us to separate ourselves from some friends who we know deep in our hearts are not healthy for us. They're not good for us in our walk with God. And he calls us to sever those relationships. And here's the danger. You hang out with people little by little, it's like putting a frog in a pot of water. And as long as you heat that water little by little, the frog doesn't realize it's getting really hot in here. And pretty soon you can actually boil that frog to death because it was little by little. But if you took that same frog and you plopped it into a boiling water, the reality is most often it's going to find a way to jump out quickly before it is boiled. Well, in the same way, it's easy for us to recognize when things are full-blown. No, I don't want that. But little things can be a real deterrent to our growth in God. Little things. The books you read. The TV you watch. The videos you watch. The things you watch on YouTube. The music you listen to. All of it can have an effect on your soul and your relationship with God. I know for myself, and again, I'm not putting this on anyone else. I know that if I watch certain shows on TV, it creates something inside of my soul that's not good. I'm not talking about lost or anything. I'm talking about, it's like, I like suspense. But when things are too suspenseful, I find myself agitated inside. I get upset. And then I can't sleep. And so I've just found it's better for me just not to watch those shows. Do I enjoy suspense? Yeah, I do. But it's not always good for me. So I don't watch it. In the same way, some of your friends aren't good for you. And you can avoid little by little but you can also get sucked in if you're not careful. Verses 16 and 17 says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You want to know some things of God? You need to ask yourself, is this thing good? Is this good? Is this healthy? Is this life-giving in my soul? All good things we need for our lives come from God. James is telling us that. Temptation is trying to get us to fulfill our desires in a way other than waiting on God. It's, it's what Satan did to Jesus. He said to Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And now think about that. Every temptation that he gave to Jesus, Jesus was one day going to fulfill himself. He was going to have all the kingdoms of the world. 
But the temptation wasn't that he would have the kingdoms of the world. The temptations were, are you going to wait for God's timing? Are you going to do it God's way? Or are you going to take the shortcut? That's what temptation is about. It's to take shortcuts to fulfill desires, even legitimate desires, because I want it now and I want it in my way. Verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. (coughs) One of the primary weapons that we have is the same weapon Jesus used in his temptations. Do you remember what that was? He used the word of God. The word of God. You need to know, you need to eat the word of God. That's number five on your list, I think it is. It's been said that a dirty Bible leads to a dirty life. In other words, if you let your Bible just sit around all dusty and collecting all kinds of junk that's in the air, pollen covers it because you never open it, you never read it. Don't be surprised if you don't have life going into your soul. The Word of God is what can transform us, change us, make us into the people He's called us to be. But it's not just the written Word of God, although it is that. It is the Bible. It is also those personal words that God has spoken over our lives. Things that He has said to us, and about us. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had to go back to prophecies that different ones have spoken over my life and remind myself, this is what God says. I know how I feel. I know what my mind is trying to lie to me about, but this is what God says. I go to the Word of God, and I say, here's what God says. He has chosen you. He has adopted you. He has made you accepted in the beloved. That's what His Word says in Ephesians 1.8. But, I also go to the prophecies that he has spoken over my life. Paul tells Timothy, This charge I commit to you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. What was the warfare? It was the temptation to cave in under his own youth. So that Paul says, Let no man judge you according to your youth, your age. But that was a temptation for Timothy. He says, Wage a good warfare based upon the words that have been spoken over your life. There's a story told of this guy who was very, very wealthy in the hills above uh, Hollywood in California. And this guy had become very, very wealthy. And one day he put on his Armani suit. He went out and got in his brand new Ferrari and started down the mountain to come into work. On the way, people who were following him would later report he began to drive erratically all over the road. And they're watching this thinking, should I call the police? Is this guy drunk? What's going on? But he's going all over the road until finally they come to a curve and to their horror, he drives straight off of the curve over a cliff and down and his car explodes and he's killed. They do an autopsy and at first they found nothing until one of the um, coroners found inside of his ear a little red mark. And when he put in a magnifying glass to look at it more carefully, he found a little wasp stinger sticking into that red spot. And they realized that when he was driving erratically, he's trying to swat this bee out of the car. But ultimately, it stung him. And in the place where it stung him, it affected his equilibrium, his ability to keep things on keel. And he actually was killed by a little bee. And I think how many times are there little things that we allow into our lives thinking it's not such a big deal when the truth is we should be swatting that thing to death immediately. 
and not giving it any place. Do any of you guys know who Bobby Leach is? Have you ever heard of Bobby Leach? I thought you guys would living over here. Okay. Bobby Leach is the first Englishman who ever went over Niagara Falls in a barrel successfully. I mean, you go online, Google it yourself. It's an amazing story. I mean, he built this barrel for him, put cushions all around it, went into the barrel, and illegally he went over the falls, and he survived without a problem. A couple years later, on his bucket list was to visit New Zealand. So he went to New Zealand, and while in New Zealand, he was walking down a sidewalk, and he slipped on an orange peel and broke his leg. In the healing process, gangrene set in. Three months later, Bobby Leach was dead. We protect ourselves from the big things. Sometimes we neglect the little things that are right around us that have the power to kill us if we're not careful. James chapter 1, this issue of temptation. God sometimes calls us to flee, sometimes to resist it. He always calls us to get aggressive about it. And he calls us most of all to allow his word, what he has said over our lives and about us, to transform us from the inside out so that I am getting my desires met by God. So that whether in your marriage where you say, well, I think I have a right to expect this of my spouse. Maybe you do. But if you're not getting it, are you waiting on God to fulfill everything inside of your soul? Or do you go outside of that into the realms of immorality? How do you live your life? That's the challenge that God gives us in James chapter 1 for temptation. Would you stand with me? Temptations are a shortcut, an artificial solution. Don't take the devil's substitute. Choose to trust God that he not only knows the best for you, he is going to fulfill the best for you. It might not be in the timing you want. might not be in the way you want. But I can tell you this, I've lived long enough to know and believe that God's ways are always better. And that sin destroys you from the inside out. It kills you. It is deadly. Would you bow your heads with me? I don't know today if you're here today, and maybe you're somebody who has been struggling in an area of life. Maybe it is a temptation that you're struggling with, something you're faced with, and you're trying to figure out, like, how do I battle this thing? I don't want it. I am praying that God's word, which is greater than my word, will take root in your heart and life and that the Holy Spirit would quicken to you God's heart for you. Because if you know what God says about you, if you know how God feels about you, that changes everything in your soul. Maybe for you, you've already given in to temptation and you realize I've, I've fallen. Well, the scripture tells us in 1 John, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus Christ. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we can have restored fellowship, not only with God, but with one another. That's his promise. That's God's word. If you will do it God's way, it's always best. If you fail, even there, God has made a plan for us. Not that he winks at our failure. It's not that he chuckles at our sin. He says, no, this will destroy you unless you come back to me. 
So if that's where you are, I want to give you a chance right now just to say, Jesus, I, I've fallen in this area. I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm asking for you to give me courage to believe that your way is the best and to walk it out your way in your timing. Just take a moment and do that between you and the Lord. doesn't matter what your associates think, what your close friends, what your beloved even thinks. It matters. What does God say? Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you as one among many who faces temptations where my mind sometimes feels like it's a circus that I need a ringmaster for. But I have found that you, your spirit, and your word are the best for battling the things that come against me. And Lord, I believe the same for my friends. And where I have fallen, as do we all at times, Lord, we repent and we turn back to you. We say, forgive us and cleanse us and help us to walk your way. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we see in James that trouble and temptations are pandemic around the world. They're everywhere at all times. It can come at the most innocent of times when we're not looking for anything, but it comes. And we want to look to you for your strength and your courage and a better way of walking it out. I pray, God, that you would even use this word to change how we live. That we would approach this more proactively than rather reactively. We would get on the front end and say, I want to set some guardrails around my life. I, I want some boundaries, even against the enemy. And Lord, where it might be that we need to change some of our friends, our associations, it's not because we're thinking we're better than anybody. It's because we know what is better and healthier for us as we walk with you. Give us that kind of courage as well, I pray. And we're asking you to take us out of here by your Spirit with the sense that we can do this, that we can actually walk in victory day by day with all that we face, you know, the temptations to get angry, to be short with our family, short with our spouses. We can actually walk this thing out in a way that is humble and relying upon your strength. For when I am weak, then your strength is made manifest in and through me. I believe your word, Father. And I'm asking you to do that in us, that we would walk in a more holy, righteous way. I ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day. Don't forget, next weekend is our New Kid by Summer parenting seminars.